You just heard testimony of a man who's committed to the sharing of the gospel. And that's very much what our mission as a church is. Taking the gospel to those who are near to us but far from Christ. And uh, we thank you, brother, for that continued service. And we view you as an extension of the ministry of this church in this larger community. Well, turn in your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. Barbie read these verses for us a little while ago, so they should be familiar in your hearing. We're going to look at them now as we meet the Lord Jesus again in a situation of life as he brought the good news to those who were in such desperate need of it. Before we get into the study, let's bow together in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the morning and for the opportunity we have had to gather and to sing your praises. We thank you for the fellowship we have shared together and for this wonderful word of testimony we have heard from our brother Landis. And we pray your continued and abiding blessing upon his work as he uh, continues to hold forth the gospel in places that uh, many of us do not have access to. And we thank you as well now for the opportunity we have to turn our attention to your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and that as a result of our time in the word together, we will grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Don't get in that one, a woman cried as she stood in front of an open elevator door, a quiet toddler in her arms. Why not? Was this elevator dangerous? Well, no. But in a city where perhaps the dirtiest word of all is wait, it was close enough. It'll stop on every floor, said the woman, Shira Stember by name, standing in the lobby of a Seward Park Manhattan co-op building on the lower east side of Manhattan. Well, she is happy the elevator is there for her neighbors, Ms. Stember said she prefers to take the next car because this open door leads into a Shabbos or a Sabbath elevator. From sundown on Friday until the sun sets on Saturday, many observant Jews refrain from certain activities, including pushing elevator buttons, following a restriction that comes from a prohibition against creating sparks and fires on the Sabbath day. So in some buildings, elevators are programmed to stop automatically at every floor during the Sabbath. That way, observant Jews can hop right in and eventually get where they're going without violating the law of the Sabbath. This story is from the New York Times, and it explains a contemporary version of an ancient Jewish legal tradition for the benefit of us uninformed Gentiles and describes how this particular Sabbath law is experienced in various residential buildings in New York City. For our purposes this morning, it also demonstrates a continuity of a tradition that Jesus was confronted with in our text today. Now, you may recall from our recent studies that this kind of conflict between tradition and authority is not new in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. As we met him early in the gospel in chapter 1, we found Jesus in conflict with demons and exercising his authority over them by delivering folks oppressed with them. He had also, on, uh, on occasion, 
dealt with the, uh, the issue of sin, forgiving sin. Remember that paralytic that was lowered through the roof. And Jesus said to him, son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, this was a tall statement. And you may recall in our study that the Pharisees and scribes who heard him make that statement were indignant within themselves and said, who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins precisely. Only God can forgive sins. And God manifest among them had just exercised his authority over sin. Well, we've seen some other episodes occur in which authority has met tradition. Uh, we saw it uh, last week even as we saw the issue of the bridegroom, remember, and the disciples who didn't, fi- didn't uh, fast along with the Pharisees. And Jesus said, well, the bridegroom is with them. Fasting is not required. Again, demonstrating his authority in the face of conflict. But now came the big one. Because now he was going to find himself in conflict over the issues of Sabbath law. And this was a big deal. You see, the Sabbath was a cherished institution for the Jewish people. It had been given to them at the time of the Exodus as a special sign of the covenant that God had made with them. We'll see more of this in a few moments. But but God had given them even one of the Ten Commandments to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And so these people took that commandment very seriously. But now Jesus is about to violate some Sabbath traditions. And that was tantamount to declaring war on the religious establishment of the day. We find again another example where spoiled faith and spoiled religion confronts the faithful authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in these verses, we are looking at the subject of Jesus and the law of the Sabbath. Now, the story begins, it's a very simple story. There's not a whole lot to it. It's a very simple story, but it begins by giving us the setting, an occasion for finding fault on the Sabbath. And this is in verses 23 and 24. Look down at those, if you will, where we read, And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? There you've got the occasion and the setting of this story. It's an occasion for finding fault on the Sabbath day. Jesus and his disciples were passing along the pathways of ancient Israel. It's a scene you might even see today. These roads are often dirt and hard-packed dirt, and fields of grain will come right up to the edge. And so it would uh, not be uncommon to see folks walking down these paths, being a little hungry, and uh, taking a handful of grain. Might have been barley, could have been wheat, most likely the grains that these disciples would have found and would have partaken of. But the other key wrinkle that's given in this occasion is the day of the week. You might see people passing on these paths on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and the Pharisees would have thought nothing of what they saw. But this was the Sabbath, the seventh day. And the disciples were picking 
the heads of grain. Now, we might think, well, that's not a very good thing. I mean, you know how it is when you go to Winco, don't you? You go to the bulk foods tubs, and you know what the, the sign that's there? No sampling. Sure, you're cutting into their profit when you take a fistful of granola. But under the Jewish law, this was a permitted activity. These folks were not exercising uh, any violation of the law when they partook of this food. Uh, We read in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 24 and 25, this. When you enter into your neighbor's vineyard, then you may eat grapes until you're fully satisfied. But you shall not put any in your basket. When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. So what's the, what's the provision here? When you're hungry, you may go to your neighbor's vineyard or your neighbor's field and pluck a few handfuls to eat. But don't take your shopping cart because this is your neighbor's crop after all. Now these disciples were just plucking a few handfuls and as, as it was grain standing, they would take a head and then they would rub it in their hands to break the chaff, the hole away from the grain. They would blow the chaff away and then there's their granola. Just pop a handful in and eat it till they weren't hungry. That was well within the permissions of the law. And in fact, in this account in Matthew and Luke, these two gospel writers make clear what Mark doesn't explicitly say at this moment. They, the other two, Matthew and Luke, tell us that the disciples were hungry. Makes sense, doesn't it? You're hungry. Here's the opportunity. The law permits it. Have a little snack. But in verse 24, we see the Pharisees enter in. Now, this is that familiar cast of characters that we've already met in the gospel. In fact, you may recall that last week we got a pretty good description of them. We learned last week of their reckless religion. They regularly resorted to accusations rather than to love. They were impressed with outer appearances rather than humble hearts. They valued rituals over relationships. And they were committed to tradition rather than to mission. Given this heart within them, it's not a surprise that once again they would express their preferences and their commitments and values in the face of the work of the Lord Jesus. Now they spot the disciples in Jesus. They always kind of kept him close under, uh, under eye because early on they realized him to be a threat to their ways. And so they see Jesus and the disciples walking along this path. It might even be that the crops had kind of spread out in the way and they were having to, to tromp down the, the path a little bit. Well, now that would be work. You know, road building is hard work. And... As the text says, they were plucking. Why, that would be an act of harvesting, reaping. That's work. And they were threshing. I mean, they had to rub the grain together and blow the chaff away so they could eat it. Three counts, a violation of the Sabbath law. And so they said, it's a question. It's not a question soliciting an informed opinion. It's an accusation in the form of a question. And here it is. See it there in verse 24 again. Look! Why are you doing this? 
an expression of mock shock. Combination of a of a uh, melodramatic tattletale on the playground, who's just discovered a hair on fire moment, and sees the opportunity for the big gotcha. Why are you doing this horrible transgression of the law? The issue was not that they were eating the food. The issue was that it was the Sabbath day, and work was forbidden on the Sabbath. So what's the big deal? Well, let's just think for a few minutes about the Sabbath and its law. There were Sabbath laws that had been given by God. Let's be clear about that. This wasn't a human invention. This was God's idea to have laws for the Sabbath. Let me read you a couple of them from the book of Exodus. This is not the full expression. Uh, the, The regulations for the Sabbath appear more than these two places, but this will give you the heart of it. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, within the giving of the Ten Commandments, we read this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Again in Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 through 17, we read this. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Therefore you you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day... There is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It's a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor. And was refreshed. Now, those are some sobering words. You hear some very serious regulation and some rather consequential punishment for violation of the Sabbath law. And so you can understand, just taking it that far, why observant believers would be concerned that uh, they not mess it up on the Sabbath and have the law right. Now, we should say at this point that though this these uh, two passages are very strongly worded. There are other points in the law that allow some exceptions to the keeping of the Sabbath. Uh, you may be familiar with one that's pretty well known. What if your ox falls in the ditch uh, on the Sabbath day? Are you supposed to just let the animal suffer until the sun goes down on Saturday and then go rescue him? No. Exception was granted in the case of the distressed ox. It's, it's more important to get the ox out of the ditch than to worry about violating the Sabbath. 
So there are certain exceptions that are granted. But at the same time, this is a law that was rightly to be taken seriously. So far, it would be fine, except that in their zeal to take it seriously, they went overboard. You see, where there is law, as a friend of mine is fond of saying, where there's law, there's Talmud. Where there's Talmud, there's Mishnah. What are Talmud and Mishnah? Well, these are rabbinic interpretations and applications of the biblical law. Their teachers would say, I think they were often probably prompted by the sixth grader who raises his hand in the back of the Sunday school, Saturday class and says, what about? And the teacher needs to be able to make a, a valid explanation and application of the law in a given situation. So these rabbinic traditions began to arise. And rabbinic traditions over time got written down in the documents that I mentioned a moment ago, Talmud and Mishnah, and gained the force of biblical law in the practice by the Jewish people. So now you've got not only what the Bible says, but you've got all these layers of what the rabbis say that are given equal authority. Now, when it comes to the Sabbath law, they shined brilliantly. There, over time, developed a Mishnah in which there were 39 activities of work that would be forbidden on the Sabbath day. 39 of them. These 39 were divided into four groups or, or categories. The first 11 were categories that related to the baking of bread. The second 13 were activities required to make a garment. The third category, consisting of nine activities, were required to make and tool leather. And the final six were required to build a structure or a building. Now, incidentally, among that final category was a law against building a fire. And a contemporary form of that building of a fire involves the use of electric motors. Because electricity makes sparks... Electric motors might create sparks. They could even start a fire if they have not been safely installed or, or are not safely functioning. So there was a concern that you would be building a fire if you engaged an electric motor. Enter the elevator laws. Because when you push a button, you engage a motor. You're creating a spark. So the restriction on the punching of elevator buttons on the Sabbath, as I told you a few moments ago. Now, the relevant category for Jesus in his situation was the first one, the grouping that had to do with baking of bread. You want to know what the 11 categories in the baking of bread are? I'm sure you're dying to know this. Here they are. In the first category were sowing, plowing, reaping, binding of sheaves, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, sifting, kneading, and baking. So it's about baking a bread, but it starts all the way back with the planting and the uh, preparation of this, the grain that would be the flour in the bread. Well, you heard the two, didn't you? The picking and the threshing. These were the two activities that the Pharisees caught Jesus' disciples involved in. Well, that's not enough, though, is it? I mean, you've got the category... But now you need to know a little bit more about what's entailed in the category. You've got to have, you don't reap, but what is the definition of reaping? And within that definition, what all might be included? Here's the 
Mishnah's definition of reaping. Reaping is severing a plant from its source of growth. Okay, that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you go in with a sickle and you cut down grain, you're separating root from stalk. Yeah, you're separating. But that's not all. It was also forbidden to climb a tree. What? Here's the logic. If you climb a tree, you might break off a limb. What have you just done? You've severed that limb from its source of growth. You've just harvested a tree limb. Now, I don't think you're planning to eat it. Unless you're Yule Gibbons, some of you will recognize and appreciate that. But the breaking off of a limb was deemed to be reaping, so you wouldn't do something that might imperil a limb. Furthermore, you couldn't ride an animal under the provisions of the law of reaping. Why? Because in a a forgetful moment, you might break a a limb off a tree to, to swat the animal with. So, under the provisions of the law of reaping, there would be no riding of animals on the Sabbath. How about threshing? Well, here's the definition of threshing. The removable, the removal of an undesirable outer from a desirable inner. Well, that's, I mean, when you rub the grain, that's what happens. You, sever, you separate the kernel from the hole, you blow the hole away, and now you've got the grain. Separating desirable and undesirable. But it's not only grain. Suppose you've got fruit. And you want the juice from the fruit. The pulp is the undesirable. So when you're juicing, you are making, uh, you're threshing, and that would be forbidden. And in fact, in the act of juicing, maybe some juice gets into a cloth. Maybe that, if you were, say, for example, with, with grape juice, filtering it through a cloth in order to, to uh, separate the, the grape skin and all of that from the juice following it through, you might wring that cloth. Well, that would be work because you are wringing out the cloth well but you know there, there now there's another problem what if it's undesirable maybe you've got a, a a cloth that's been used for mop water now you're not separating it from anything you want to consume desirable but mop water and wringing mop water would also be an infraction of the law but not the law of threshing there was a law of laundering and scouring that that one would be a violation of do you begin to get a feel here this could go on ad infinitum. If you just read some of these, these uh, commentaries and see how they split Nat's hairs in seeking to define and explain, limit and delimit, those things that were deemed work on the Sabbath. It all added up to a crushing burden, a heavy yoke. Placed on these people in the name of something that was good and righteous and holy, but was complicated by human endeavor. What got lost in the thinking of these Pharisees was the fact that these disciples were hungry. And they were exercising a permission granted under the law to satisfy their hunger without violating the spirit and the intent of the Sabbath. That would be the obvious answer to the question they ask in verse 24. Why do your disciples do this? Why do they do what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Because they're hungry. But because the question was framed in the the context of lawful on the Sabbath, the Pharisees considered themselves justified in their indignation. Well, when we come to verses 25 and 26, we find a precedent from the past 
concerning or applied to the Sabbath day. This is Jesus' answer to their question. And it's interesting that he answered their question with another question. You see that in verse 25? Jesus said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? Now there's a clue right there that Jesus sees the defining issue in this matter, the hunger of the disciples, not the fact that it's the Sabbath day. And he appeals to a precedent that was set by the honored King David. Now here's what they did on that occasion. He entered into the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. The event that's described here is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 21. We won't take time to look back there, but let me just uh, rehearse and explain a little bit of what was involved as Jesus cited what would have been for them a very familiar text of Scripture. The reference to consecrated bread here was a part of the ceremonial law of Israel. On each Sabbath day, there would be 12 loaves of bread placed on a table in the holy place in the tabernacle. These 12 loaves uh, were of symbolic importance. They symbolized two things. The number 12 symbolized 12 tribes of Israel. So it was a statement about Israel and her national identity. And the fact that it was bread placed there, was a rep- placed in the holy place, was a representation of, one, the presence of God among his, tw- his 12 tribes, among his people. And the fact that just as bread is required to sustain life, God is the one who providentially sustained them even in the very essentials of life. That's what this this, uh, ceremonial ritual was intended to communicate. Now, fresh bread was placed every Sabbath day. And when the new bread came out, they didn't throw the old in the dumpster. The priests ate the replaced bread. That was part of the provision. You can read about this. Leviticus chapter 24 gives you some detail about it. You can check that out if you wish later. So that was the law. The 12 new loaves replaced the 12 old loaves. The 12 old loaves, under the provisions of the law, were reserved only for the priests to sustain them when they were hungry. Now comes David. This is a period of time where he's under pursuit by Saul. He and his men are are on the run And as they were in certain desperate situations, here they came, they were hungry, and they came to this this tabernacle in need of food. And what did they do? They ate the bread that only the priests were supposed to eat. David and those who were with him. You see a parallel here? David, of course, the venerated king. Here's King Jesus. And David and his band of followers, disciples here, Disciples are eating just like David's men did because they were hungry. And the need of their life was sufficient to justify an exception to a ceremonial law. So Jesus acknowledges that these laws had been broken. He wasn't disputing that. But he was saying that there is occasion for exception to certain of those laws. It goes to the fact that there is a letter of a law and a spirit of a law. What is the intention under the law? Now we have to be careful not to 
separate those two. Because sometimes we could justify ignoring particulars in the name of some spirit that we think or speculate or wish were the case. That's not what is being called for here. But Jesus is going to show us exactly how the spirit of the law gets expressed as we proceed in verses 27 and 28 to two abiding principles of the Sabbath. Two abiding principles of the Sabbath. In other words, what gets to the spirit of the law that these Pharisees were so zealous to uphold? The first principle we find in verse 27. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for mankind or for people and not people for the Sabbath. That's the first principle. The Sabbath was made for us. We were not made for the Sabbath. In Jesus' mind, the Sabbath was a gift from God. It was, its purpose was not to put us in a straitjacket, but rather it was to promote our flourishing. It was to provide for us and those things of which we have need that we might fulfill His good and gracious purposes for us. So how did this spirit of the law then work? In, how, or in other words, how is the law made for us? Well, one is very evident, even in the statement of its giving in Exodus, and that is it is given as an occasion for rest. Because these bodies need rest, don't they? Imagine it particularly in a day when work was largely physical and very strenuous and hard. Some of you know what that's like because that's the way you work. And uh, a body can go for so long and then it's just tuckered out. It needs rest. God knows that. God, in fact, rested himself after he had done the massive work of creation. Now, was it because God was worn out? No. The Almighty God never grows weary. It's not as though his strength were tapped, but he set in his setting taking of a, a principle of rest the example that is to inform us in these finite and frail bodies. We need rest. And so God has given us the occasion to seek and find rest from our toil. It's also an occasion for worship. A separate Sabbath day gave the opportunity for worship. We read some of the descriptions of what went on, and that was a part of the activity of the Sabbath. And in fact, if you read even contemporary customs of, of observant Jews, they will talk positively about the Sabbath, not only the things they can't do, like push elevator buttons, but the activities they have for promoting uh, wholesome family environment and the worship of, of God as they believe he should be worshipped and those sorts of things that are part and parcel of God's design for, him, for our relationship with him. And that contributes to our good because God has provided a means whereby we may fulfill that dimension of our life, flourishing in the worship of God. It provides for us a, an opportunity to relate to a holy God with the idea of a day that is set apart to Him so that we might set ourselves apart to, for Him and in His service. It gives us the opportunity to worship God as we, we serve Him as Creator and Redeemer and Sustainer and Provider, all those things that we celebrate in our songs as we sing and those truths that we rehearse to one another as we speak in worship, as we pray in worship. 
Why also was the Sabbath made for people? Because it provides an opportunity to care for human need. Even when those needs may take precedence over some of the ceremonial aspects of Sabbath observance. I want to be careful to point out here that this is not a carte blanche uh, setting aside of regulation of behavior. There are certainly moral laws that God has given that are inviolable. You might say, for example, well, I need a promotion at work, so I guess I can set aside those laws that forbid lying and cheating and stealing and, uh, and do some things that I know will set me in favor with my boss so I'll get a promotion. No, that's not what this principle uh, validates. Those moral laws are fixed and inflexible. There are also civil laws that were given in the Old Testament, how they regulated the, the way that the society was to work in relationship with one another. And there's no justifying the setting aside of those kinds of regulations, which really were practical expressions of love of neighbor. There was no setting of those aside in order to serve one's selfish advantages at the expense of a neighbor. Now, we've already talked about one exception given to the, the law of ownership of crop, where it was a legitimate thing to eat and, and pluck a little trail mix on the road from a neighbor's field. But the prohibition said you're still to respect the property right of your neighbor. The third kind of law that we encounter in Scripture are the ceremonial laws, such as the Sabbath laws. And those things that have to do with the, the relationship that people sustain with the Lord through their rituals and ceremonies. Many of those have been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. The book of Hebrews shows us how that is the case. And so we no longer are bound by those because they've been fulfilled in Christ. But as we find these expressions of the law, particularly in ceremonial matters, we just need to understand that God has intention for those laws, but that there are those occasions where exceptions may be granted. It's not an abolition of the principle of rest that Jesus is talking about here. But it does say that there are certain times that, um, that there are exceptions that are justified. The second abiding principle we find is in verse 28, where we read, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now there's the authority issue that comes in once again. Why is this legitimate? Why is it that Jesus can take this position when the Pharisees object and advocate their view? Jesus affects here and says, says, because I'm God and you're not. Because I created the Sabbath. I created it to be what it is, and I can regulate it as I see fit. And that's precisely how these two principles relate to one another. Though he gave this one second, it's the ground for the first. He says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And if I say that the Sabbath, though it was made to be holy to God, is for, made for you, then that settles the question. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, there was, a, there was a little grist for the mill of the Pharisees. But there's some grist for our mills, too, as we consider this passage and ask, so what does this say to me in respect to the observance of the Sabbath? Well, let me first point out that as Christians, we don't observe the Sabbath because the Sabbath means seventh, and Saturday is the Sabbath. So as Christians, we don't. Observant Jews do. Saturday is their Sabbath. And so that's the 
schedule for the elevator that we talked about earlier, and other activities that, uh, that Jews will tend to follow. There are some Christian groups who believe that we are under the provisions of that law. I, I even worked for some when I was in college and uh, uh, learned what it meant that during the winter months we quit work before 5.30 because it was getting dark before 5.30 on Friday, and we never worked on Saturday. But as Christians, uh, as we are, we understand that uh, the Sabbath was the sign of the Old Covenant, made particularly with Israel. That is emphasized repeatedly in Exodus 31, the passage that I read to you earlier. The Sabbath is a sign of the covenant with Israel, and we are New Covenant believers. We live this side of the cross. We are in the church, and the Sabbath laws thus are not required of us in observance. Furthermore, we don't believe that the excesses that the Pharisees presented were a faithful understanding of God's intention for the Sabbath day, even for those who observed it. It was their traditional excesses that were in play in this particular situation. It was not a violation of the Sabbath as God intended it to be for the flourishing of those who received it. At the same time that we say we're not under Old Covenant, we should also remember that we embrace the claims of Jesus, who declared himself to be Lord of the Sabbath. And as Lord, he has ordained a Sabbath kind of experience for us. We need rest too. And so that principle is applicable for us. As New Covenant believers, we celebrate the sorts of things that would relate to the Old Testament Sabbath on the first day of the week. Sunday. Why? Because Jesus rose on the first day of the week, and we mark his resurrection when we gather on Sunday, as we are this morning. We gather because it is a part of our flourishing before him and a part of our Christian experience with him to worship. And so we dedicate this day to the worship of our Lord and Savior. We're a Christian church. And we also do well to rest from our labors. Well, this morning, we have gathered and sanctified this day to the Lord in our worship, which we are in the very act of, of uh, doing at this moment and soon will conclude. And this afternoon holds perhaps some promise of rest. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been up since 5 o'clock this morning. And this afternoon, I'm going to take a nap. <laughs> Worship team, will you please come? Let's pray. We thank you, our Father, for our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his teaching clarified so much that had become confused in the hands of people. Lord, whatever their motives... They had created a system that became a burden and an oppressive thing. And we understand the freedom that we have in Christ. Not a freedom to, to express our sinfulness, but a freedom to worship in spirit and in truth. And to live everything of our lives in that same way. We commit ourselves to our Lord Jesus in obedience. We pray that by your spirit you will lead us in the paths of righteousness. We pray these things in Jesus' name.